Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to a new year, new beginnings, and for January, we have Opal Palmer Adisa. She's a writer of both poetry and prose, as well as a photographer, professor, educator, and cultural activist. Adisa has lectured and read her work throughout the United States, the Caribbean, South Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, Germany, England, and Prague and has performed in Italy and Bosnia, Spain, France. A professor of graduate creative writing and literature at California College of Arts, Asita has taught at several universities, the University of the Virgin Islands, Stanford, University of California, Berkeley, San Francisco State University. Her poetry, stories, essays, and articles on a wide range of subjects has been collected in over 400 journals, anthologies, and other publications, including Essence Magazine. Opal Apalma Asida holds a doctorate degree in English and Ethnic Studies from the University of California, Berkeley. She's conducted workshops in elementary through high school, museums, churches, and community centers, as well as prisons and juvenile centers. And as usual, my co-host, Chris Daly, he'll be conducting the interview. So take it away, Chris. Thanks, Denise. And welcome, Professor Dr. Opal Parma-Disa. It's good to have you this afternoon as we dial up. It's very, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Great. We always like to um, let our audience know a little about our guests. We know you have some Jamaican roots. Tell us a little about your Jamaican roots and childhood. Okay. Um, Well, I was born and raised in Jamaica until I was almost 17. I lived there. And I grew up primarily on a sugar estate. Um, my mother managed the estate. My father was a chemist who converted sugar into rum. Um, I have a sister and two brothers. And, you know, I mean, I grew up very much uh, a Jamaican in terms of every Sunday we went to the beach. We ate fish and ackee and salt fish. And, um, yeah, uh, I think a, a very typical Caribbean lifestyle. Um, did, did that yes. setting on the plantation um, give you a yes, a uh, yeah, a sugar estate is yeah, a sugar estate is analogous to a plantation uh, in the USA, uh-huh. and so yeah, so I grew up with acres and acres of fields of uh, sugarcane, and much of my early story, certainly my first short story collection, and a lot of my earlier poems were inspired and were the result of uh, being born and reared in such a place. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I can just see the scenery right now. But Martin <laughs> is, is such a, a, a great... I, I came from um, St. Catherine, and I know the rolling hills just below there where you just see... Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. yes. But um, what what planted this passion for writing in your heart? 
You know, um, my mother was always an avid reader, and we always had a, a library. And But interestingly enough, as a child, I was not a reader. My mother and my sister were readers, but I much rather running out. I was a tomboy, and so I would okay. much rather <laughs> hang out with the boys, climb trees, you know, I have scars to show from it, jump off roof, go swim in the canal, those kinds of things. But I think truly what inspired it is not just that my mother was such an avid reader and she read and she played the piano, but I think more so was storytelling. Both my uh, paternal, my maternal grandfather and my maternal great-grand-aunt were storytellers. And my mother is originally from Montego Bay in Jamaica, and she would send us into the country in Jamza, where she was from, every summer. And my great-grand-aunt was a tremendous storyteller, and I think that's where I really fell in love with words and learned how to use language, because she would tell a story and we would just sit with bated breath, you know, and she would tell mostly duffy stories, and I would be so afraid at night. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get up. I, everything I, someone had to do everything with me, and I think that was really where I understood how magical words were, and how they could transform you, and how they could completely alter, you know, your sense of reality. Yes. So I have to give credit to my aunt Zilla. Yes. Today, we live in a world in a video age, it's said, where kids' images and their minds are shaped by video games and, and images. Given that, is writing still relevant today? <laughs> well, I'm still writing, and I still have a readership, so I think it is. I mean, I okay. know many people say, many people say, you know, that writing is going to go out. I don't think so. Yes, I think we are very much bombarded or consumed by the technological era. But, you know, people still text a lot, and that is a kind of writing, not necessarily the kind I do. But I think this this tradition is going to be around for a while. I don't think we have to worry about that. And, and I still see people reading. You know, they're not reading necessarily books in terms of the way that I love books, so they're reading it on their iPhones or they read it on their Kindle. So writing is still very much important. We can't live without it. As, as you stated, you know, your imagination was given a lot of father by the stories that you told and the images and the landscape in which you grew up. We know that there are some aspiring writers that are going to be listening in on this um, interview. Do you have a word of wisdom that you'd like to share with some promising writer? Well, I think one of the things that I think is, is common for most writers is that you have to be observant. You have to be an eavesdropper, you know. My mother okay. will tell you that she always used to say I was nosy. I was always into people's business. I was always listening to conversations. Um, so the, the, if you be a writer, you have to be observant. You have to pay attention to how people walk, how they talk, how what postures and gestures they make, uh, because that you never know where your story is going to come from. And a lot of the things oh. that you intend to write, in fact, are going to be pieces of information that you pull from just being observant. That's an excellent tip. Excellent tip, Opal. Uh, you. you you decided to pick up the word and make it a career choice. Um, apart mm -hmm. from the formative years that you have with your grandparents and family, is there any writers that uh, influence your style and your the, the way you, you approach writing? 
Yes, absolutely. In in fact, in my in one of my earlier correct collections, Eris Muse, there's a piece um, that I was actually paid to write before it was published called How I Became a Writer. And in that piece, I chased the genesis of my writing, and I and I and I attribute much of me standing up and saying I want to be a writer when I went to New York um, at the tender age of 17 to college and saw Sonia Sanchez, the great African-American writer, read her work. I think that was really the impetus for me to say I could be a writer because here was a, a, a petite black woman like me reading in front of an audience and capturing that audience, and that was a really decisive moment in my life. So I certainly want to attribute and and give much due to Sonia Sanchez. And then a Trinidadian um, poet and painter, he's known, I think, primarily as as a visual artist, Leroy Clark, I also met in New York, and he really took me under his wings and told me to go to readings and introduced me to a number of of poets and um, also gave me the confidence that I needed. And then the poets that I discovered on my own, Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet, has greatly influenced and informed my work in terms of just techniques and uh, trying to be true to what I know and what I see and writing with a certain sense of straightforwardness and honesty. So I, you know, I want to attribute those three people as laying the foundation of, of my work. And then, of course, growing up in Jamaica, and particularly when I started to write short stories, um, it was Louise Bennett. And, and remember hearing oh. Louise Bennett on the radio in, in Jamaica and her storytelling um that also inspired and informed my work, yes. So, you know, and there have been other writers over the period, over the last 30 years, but certainly in terms of my formative development, then I would have to credit and attribute that to these three writers. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, but let's talk about one of your recent work, The Four-Headed Women, and it's, it's such an intriguing title to me. Uh-huh. Be and how you developed that title and and what the the framework of that fine work is. Yes. Okay, so four-headed woman, you know, I'm a, um, as woman in the modern world and, and even before my time because my mother and other women did it, we juggle many things. So uh-huh. um, the forehead has to do with all the things that we juggle. We juggle being... Um, mothers and, 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 and wives, we juggle being professional, we juggle our career. So basically I'm saying we have to have a different head for each of those spaces that we occupy as mother, as a wife or a lover, um, as a worker, a colleague in the work environment, and then the time we need to spend in developing our work. So that's how it becomes four-headed woman. Because people say, Shouldn't you, don't you mean woman? I said, no. I said, because every woman needs at least four heads <laughs> in order to manage all the things that we have to juggle. And so the poem, the collection of poems in, the, in this book are also divided into four sections. And the four sections, uh, you know, the first section I look at women through food, breads, and fruits. And then the second section I look at it in terms of our um, biological cycle or menses and things like that. The third section I look at how overwhelming it might be for us to juggle all this thing and 
breakdown, emotional and psychological breakdown because of all the things we have to juggle. And then the third section, the last section, which is really, I think, my funniest section, is a section I call the bathroom graffiti. And those poems are really inspired from teaching at universities and going into the restrooms and seeing all of the things that women would write on the restrooms, all of the questions that they had and that they would write and dears of a woman would respond to them. So that's, in a nutshell, what the collection is about. Well, that's a very comprehensive collection. Will you give us just a taste of what's in one of these sections? Okay, sure. Uh, let's see, very quickly. Um, uh, I should have... Uh, okay, so this is called Breaking Point, and this is the the third section. The slightest shift of the wind smarts my eyes. I do not measure myself neither by what others say or do nor by what they tell me I should be, holding the light up, turning the light off. They do not want me to be myself, want me to be a bat bullfolded in a cave, burnt toast tossed to the chickens. I test ideas with kaput words, not husband, not children, nor boss, those my, moro my morose code taped out by the hummingbird. Through neutered language, I find my way back, closer to the beginning, where unraveling began. The birds are returning. Hear the water carried on their wings. Wow, so that's powerful. Yeah, so that's called breaking point four. Okay. I see that you 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 even go into prisons to actually juvenile centers to actually is there's a healing um, presence in the world that you present that 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 you really um, use as a as that kind of hopeful possibility. Well, you know, I'd like I think words are can be healing, and I really try for my work, regardless of whatever I'm exploring to be healing, and I, I kind of started working in the prisons and in the juvenile center by accident. A colleague was, had gotten a grant and I needed another poet, and I thought, why not? And I just found it a very inspiring place, not only for myself, but what people who are locked up would produce. You know, I, was, I, I, was, I must admit, the first time I was quite blown away <laughs> by the the thoughtfulness and the um, sense of urgency and their pressing need to communicate and to share. So that that experience opened up a whole other world for me, and it did show me that poetry is very much a healing balm for people who are lost and people who are struggling to find their way. And in fact, they did a census in the USA, and they found that in times of tragedy, tragedy, poetry is the form that the majority of people turn to as a way of expressing their grief or anguish. That's incredible. That's, I'm glad you're using it as such a powerful tool. Uh, I know you, you, you hail from the Caribbean, but you have such a global presence. But I'm not sure if you could give us any insight as to what the state of writing is in the Caribbean community or in Jamaica in general. Well, you know, I go to Jamaica yearly. I was there last year, last Christmas, in fact, and I hope to be back um, in another few months. 
Right now, the Caribbean is at a very exciting time. I teach Caribbean literature, and 10 years ago, I would boast that I know all of the writers. I can't do that anymore because there are just so many, and they're so varied. It's really a very, considering that we're such a small place, not just Jamaica, but the Caribbean, a number of writers that we produce is actually quite remarkable. The fact is that we've produced two Nobel Prize winners, you know, Derek Walcott and... um, Viet Naipaul, we have produced uh, McCarthy Award winners, Edwidge Danticat and um, Una Diaz, and we've, we've produced Pulitzer Prize winners. So given the fact that we're so small and that writing is relatively new for us in terms of um, sovereignty and education in the Caribbean because of the enslavement, the, the work that we've produced in the last, certainly the last 50 years, is quite an incredible amount of work, and I'm just really gratified to see, and always I'm amazed and blown away by the amazing poets and writers that are coming out of the region. Uh, Writing is very much alive and well in the Caribbean, and I think some really exciting and powerful work is being done by uh, both men and women in in theater, in poetry, in prose, um, in just all forms. It's an exciting period, and I just try to catch up <laughs> okay, <laughs> or <that's> keep up. <laughs> well, it, it must be tough for you to get. When we look at your body of work, we see your, 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 the scope and the breadth of your work covers so many niches. Could you give us a sense of how you, you get that breadth and depth um, Given the kind I'm not, of I'm not necessarily sure. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great question, and I'm not even sure I can answer that. I think I I, but I think part of has to do with my sense of curiosity, that I'm also uh-huh. widely read, widely read, and um, I study and research a lot. So you know, even in this in the putting together of this collection, four-headed woman. You know, there were things I researched, things that I thought I knew, but things that I needed to know better about the fruits and the food, um, about the women's cycle, you know, about graffiti. So that for me, I love researching, and so I do a lot of researching. I also consider myself a global person. Yes, I'm very much Jamaican. Yes, I'm very much Caribbean, but I'm also globally concerned about the world and different peoples, and so, which is partly why I travel so much, but also studying. So I think that's why my work has had that reach, because I am a global person in terms of my outlook and my poetry, despite various language barriers, translates to other people. So they read it, you know, when I was invited to Spain, I was figuring, like, what would they get from my work? But they got it, Uh and they understood it, and they loved it. And and I think it's because my poetry, while being very specific and a lot of it being very specific to the Caribbean, also is very universal and has a, a wide global range. Yeah, the world is clearly Austin, and you have these varied um, audiences that you need to connect with. I, I, I saw that you, you've been in Bosnia, and I was wondering yes, that if was it a had very, to do with the war. Yeah. It was. I was invited. They had a, a, a global, they invited, I think, 20 poets from around the world, and it was a, a poet for peace, and I was one of the poets. 
And it was very exciting because I don't think most people, I think 99% of the audience didn't speak English. But what they did was that they translated our poems into both Italian and Bosnia, and then they projected them up on these screens in this auditorium where we read. So I read in English, and while I was reading my poems in English, they were the translated version of them were being streamed on the screen so that the audience, they could hear me, but they could also read the poems in their language. And, and you know, I wasn't quite sure how that was going to go over, but it went uh-huh. over really, really well. Um, you know, people applauded. Afterwards, they came and talked to me. A few translators, those who had a little English, came and talked to me and said how much they, they really got it from what I was saying and from reading it and, and, and thanked me. You know, I wrote poems specifically about the war because they did ask us to write poems that were about peace or something to do with the war. So my poems did reflect that theme. But people really got it, and it was a really wonderful feeling for me to be, you know, and I think I was the only black poet there at that time. All the other poets were primarily from over Europe, and I think there were two poets from India. Um, So it was a really wonderful experience, and I was very, very grateful, and I had a really good reception in terms of that, at the reception, people coming up and talking to me and thanking me kind of thing, yeah. Well, but we're very proud of you for that. Those kind of things where you you using the, your craft to to make such global impact. So I, we're curious. What are are you working on? Any new works? What are we going to see from you next? Well, I'm working on a collection which is called The Scent of My Father. My father died uh, last March. So um, this March will be two years, and um, this collection of poems will be. About him, about our relationship, you know, about family and relationships, specifically his relationship and our relationship and about the information that I got from his childhood and how that influenced me. Um, There were lots of things I didn't know about my father until very late because he was not very disclosing. And so just wanting to share some of those and reflect on his life, you know, and how his life, I think, has have has impacted my life as I move forward, and as a tribute to him, too, yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. We're, we're certainly looking forward to it. But I know folks listening to this broadcast will be eager to find out where they can find your fine works. How would folks get a hold of your your works? Is there a, a preferred... All of my works are available on Amazon.com. You know, um, I have a few different publishers, and so they're also available through my publishers. But I think if people just Google my name, Opal, O-P-A-L, Palmer, Adisa, A-D-I-S-A, and uh, go to Amazon.com, then uh, many of my books that are still in print will come up. And certainly this new book, Four-Headed Woman, which just came out at the end of October, um, will be available. Wonderful. Well, we're looking forward to your fine work. As we close, do you have any parting words of wisdom for writers or audiences? Well, I just want to say to people that (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, to readers, I just want to say how important it is that you continue to support me and other writers because it's really an important thing for that to happen. And for those people who want to write, I think there's still room for so many stories. And I want to urge people to just write their stories because no one else can do it for them. And the world, if you're called to write, 
then it's something you have to share in the world and there, with the world. And I think there's a kind of obligation. And just stay true to your story. Don't try to write any other story. Just write your story and write your truth. And if you if you're really honest and you do that with integrity, then I think it will be received well in the world. Opal, well, okay. we can't thank you enough for what you and just to, did. And to thank you for. Mm-hmm. And to learn more about Chris Daly, visit MyHeartMemories.com. To learn more about Jamaican Diaspora, visit JamaicanDiaspora.com. To learn more about Opal Palmer Aceda, visit OpalPalmerAceda.com or TheCaribbeanWriter.org. Thanks. We really enjoyed spending some time with you. Bye now. Bye. The summer's hottest concert series is back. Jazzing at the Shed takes place every Wednesday night, now through September 14th, at Shed Aquarium. Enjoy a night of live music from premier jazz musicians, breathtaking skyline views from Shed's lakeside terraces, food, drinks, 32,000 aquatic animals, and complete fireworks show. Tickets are on sale now at shedaquarium.org slash jazzin. Become a member today and receive free admission. Jazzin at the Shed is sponsored by Chase.